Amen. We're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22 this morning as we finish up our study from the book of Revelation. I was reminded as I read the passage this week uh, of an event in our family's lives. Some of you have heard this story, but most of you probably have not. About six years ago, we went on vacation to upstate New York, and we were staying at a resort right in the middle of the beautiful Adirondack Mountains uh, on a lake called Lake Pleasant. The weather was perfect. Uh, I don't know, 60, 70 degrees, sunny, it, uh, much, much nicer than it is here in Texas at that time of year. And so we were enjoying our vacation, and one of the activities that they offered at this resort was we could take a little pontoon boat tour around the lake, just kind of a little 30, 45-minute boat ride with your family. I think it costs like $10. And so we said, you know, that'd be a fun way to spend the afternoon. So we went and we paid our $10. We got on the boat. uh, And uh, before we got on the boat, we were sitting down at the dock, and and the boat driver, uh, he delayed us just a little bit because he looked off in the distance, and he said, you know, there are some storm clouds out there, but it's all right. I think we'll be okay I think by the time that storm gets here, we'll be back uh, from our little tour. Now, famous last words. So we got on the little boat, and uh, the first five or ten minutes, it's just beautiful. We're we're going around the lake, and he's pointing out historic homes along the lake and and all of the uh, features of the the lake, geographic features and all that kind of stuff. Uh, About five minutes in, though, uh, I suddenly heard a noise from underneath the boat, sort of a a noise that was like, something like that. Well, what had happened was he had gotten a little too close to the shore, and he had hit us on a sandbar, and he kind of chuckled. He said, I'm really sorry about that. This is my first boat tour of the summer, and I didn't realize how shallow the water was, and so I apologize, but everything's okay. So we continue to go. Uh, Just a few minutes later, though, I heard the noise again. Second time, we've run up against a uh, sandbar, except this time he damaged one of the engines. And so when we left it, the boat was now going noticeably slower than it had been before. And he kind of, again, he laughed it off. He said, no big deal. Uh, You'll just get a longer boat tour today. We'll get back. Uh, So we continue to go. Third time, I hear it a couple minutes later. This time he killed the second engine. So now there are no working engines on this pontoon boat. Uh, There's about 40 of us on the boat, and so now we're just floating. We're just drifting along, and he says, no big deal. I'll radio back to the shore. They'll send a boat out. They'll tow us back to the shore. It'll be fine. Right as he's saying that, that's when it started to rain. The storm cloud that had been off in the distance now arrived, and at first it wasn't that big a deal because it's raining kind of gently, and uh, there's a cover on this boat, and so we all moved into the middle of the boat, and we're kind of huddled up to try to keep from getting too wet. Within a couple of minutes, though, the storm hit full force. There's lightning. There's thunder. There's sheets of rain just pouring into the side of this boat. That canopy did no good at all. The boat is now rocking back and forth like this on the water, and we have no ability to get away. And so at this point, people just start freaking out. There are children and there are grown-ups and people are crying. I remember one teenage girl toward the front of the boat. She's just, she just loses it. She's just like, ah! Like just this terrible primal scream. On the other side of the boat, there's a, there's a small group of people on the boat that are singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound <laughs> that saved a wretch like me. I'm not making any of this up. So they begin to sing over there. 
right? What other people are telling jokes. There's one older lady that suggests that perhaps if we threw her off the side of the boat, that the storm would stop because of all of her many sins. And so all of this is happening. People are crying. People are screaming, you know, and in the midst of it, I, I look over and I, I saw my wife and she had our, our middle child, our second daughter, Abigail, who was, who was terrified like a lot of the kids. And she's holding her and she says, it's okay. God is with us. God knows. God sees us. And then she'd say it again. God is with us. God sees us. God knows. And she brought just a little bit of peace, as much as was possible, to that stressful situation. They did eventually get us off the boat. They sent rescue boats off to the side of our boat and offloaded us and took us away to shore. Uh, When we got to shore, I did suggest that it might be appropriate to give our $10 back for the boat ride, ever the pragmatist. And in fact, they did, and some food coupons along with it. Every time I think about that, though, I think what a perfect picture of the way our world is right now. That things that are supposed to be beautiful and are beautiful are always tainted with chaos or with pain or with fear or with tears. So you look out at the world and you go, man, there's a lot of beauty out there. There's natural beauty and created beauty and there's beauty within people and yet it's always sort of marked by, at the same time, evil or wickedness or violence or selfishness. So you say there's a lot of good stuff that people in the world do every single day, but there's also a lot of bad stuff that people do every single day and sometimes the same people do those things on the same day. And we live in this tension where we can kind of see that the world God made was meant to be beautiful and peaceful and righteous. But it's not. It's marked with sin. It's marked by violence. It's marked by unrighteousness. And it's marked by death. As Christians, we call that the fallenness of the world. And that's been the reality of our world ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree that God told them not to eat from. As a result, introducing sin into the world, which introduced the curse and death into the world. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, then death spread to all men because all sin. We all just followed in their footsteps. And so now we live in this world that is broken, that is fallen, that is sinful, that is chaotic, that is dark. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is the story of God fixing things, of God promising to restore and renew what he made So that it will fulfill the intention he made it for, which is a world where there are people made in the image of God that worship him and that rejoice in him and that obey him without the threat of sin or death, tainting it and marring it. And so all throughout the scripture, the prophets foretell that God is one day going to send somebody who will save us. And then at Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, who is proclaimed by the angels. And who the gospel writers make clear, this is the promised Messiah, the promised King who will save us from sin and death. And so Jesus lives a perfect life, but but he's killed. He dies on a cross to take death. And he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And then the rest of the New Testament 
constantly promises us that one day he's coming back. And the next time he comes, he'll set up a world, a kingdom, in which death and sin and wickedness and conflict and chaos will no longer mark the world in which God's people live. That's where the book of Revelation has been taking us over the course of this semester as we see what's going to happen in the end when God defeats every enemy and he destroys death itself and he judges all evil and he draws people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on earth. And then right at the end, he's going to set up a kingdom that will last forever where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, no more curse, no more death. That's where Revelation has been taking us for the last several weeks. And so here in Revelation 21 and 22, John is going to describe a vision of heaven coming to earth, that heaven and earth will merge. And what we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22 is simply this, that if you know Jesus, your future is unimaginably bright because God's plan for his creation and for his people will finally be fulfilled. I mean this metaphorically and literally. The future is bright for those who know Jesus. Revelation 21 and 22 is one of the most emotionally powerful passages in the scripture. I told some people this morning, it's hard for me to read it without getting emotional because it describes the world as it one day will be and as it's meant to be. I don't know if you've ever throughout the course of your day, your week, your year just said, man, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. Just in the past week, I've talked with friends who have lost people, who have had family members die, just this morning, in fact, or people who who have experienced conflict with their kids or their spouse or their grandkids or their co-workers or sort of experienced the frustration and futility of work that doesn't seem to be as productive as, as it should be or as fulfilling as it should be. And, and maybe you've experienced those things and you go, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be. If you have felt that, here, here's what Revelation 21 and 22 is going to offer to us this morning. Hope. The hope of a world where all will be as it's supposed to be. And what this passage will call us to do then is to root our hope in what God will do rather than in the fallenness of the world we live in. To say, I want to I move my hope to the new heaven and the new earth because the reality is the kingdoms of this world, they won't save me. They're broken and fallen and marred by sin. There's no, there's no ruler, leader, politician, government that's going to save me. The technology of this world might temporarily alleviate our suffering, but it won't save us from sin or from death. False religions will not save us from sin or from death, anybody other than Jesus that we place our faith in won't save us from sin and death. So John will call us to transfer our hope. Where is your hope? When you have that moment, it's not what it's supposed to be. Where's your hope? That's what we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22. It's going to call us to hope in an unimaginably joyful way. Follow with me. Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. So let me remind you of where we are in the flow of the book of Revelation again. Uh, This is the last time you're going to see this chart. All right, and we are in the midst of this church age right now. But, but what John is describing, it's after the rapture. It's after all the judgments we've walked through of the tribulation period. It's after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ that we talked about last week. So now, all of God's enemies have been destroyed. Satan and death and the Antichrist and the false prophet. All of the judgments are done. The judgment of those who have opposed Jesus and the kings and the nations who dared try to set up their reign against God's king. All has been judged. People have been called to know Jesus from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So everything's done. All that is left is for heaven to come to earth. And so John says, now I look up and he says, I see a new heaven and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And there's no longer any sea. Now it's it's a little bit unclear whether what John is describing is a completely new earth, like a, a whole new creation, or a renewed earth, a restored earth that is fundamentally the same place, just a whole lot better. He doesn't really tell us. I lean toward the first based on some other passages like 2 Peter 3, that this is a new heaven and a new earth. The old has passed away, and God is now making something new. But you're going to see it bears a lot of continuity with the old, but it's just so, so much better. The, the picture that he seems to describe here is like, imagine, um, imagine the best place you could ever imagine. We're going to talk about this a little bit better, uh, a little bit later. Uh, the best place you could ever imagine to go on vacation or whatever, this is a thousand times better. One commentator I read said that uh, not only the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible has been pointing to this moment. John is going to describe a perfect world. And this is, this is an important part that, that I want us to understand. What John's about to describe to us is a real place, a real world with real cities, with real people, real water, real trees. Everything is real. So heaven is not going to be described like you see it in the cartoons where it's sort of a disembodied place where we float around on clouds and play harps and we don't, uh, you know, we don't really do anything else for all of eternity. That uh, picture that is often described in pop culture always strikes me as unimaginably boring. Like I don't even play the harp now. I don't even particularly care to hear it, right? <laughs> if you play it, I'm sorry. Right, but that's not what John describes. What you're going to see, it is a place where we will have meaningful work serving God. We'll have enough to eat and drink forever, free of charge. We'll have an unimaginably great home in a city that God has made. It's a real place with real people resurrected in the likeness of Jesus Christ. He says the city comes down. It's adorned like a bride for her husband. Now, that that may confuse you a little bit because you remember uh, earlier in the Bible, both Israel and the church, the people are described as the bride of Christ. Here, the city is described as the bride of Christ. And so, so you go, well, which is it? Is it the people or is it the city? The answer is yes, it's both. The bride of Christ is the city with the people residing in it who are now going to feast in God's presence forever. It's like saying, is America a land or a people? And the answer is yes, it's both. A land and a people. The new Jerusalem is a place and a people. 
It is God's place. And John, what he wants us to know is this is a perfect place. That the world will be perfect. I want to I offer just a few characteristics now of the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. To, to cast a vision, to paint a picture of what it's going to be like. Because John shows us in a great deal of detail. In fact, more than I can go into in the time we have this morning. But I want to pull out a few characteristics of the new heavens and the new earth. The first and, and perhaps most significant right at the beginning is that God will live with us. Look at chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. So what John describes first and foremost is that the, the new heaven and new earth. Why is, it, why is it so great? Why is it so beautiful? Well, it's not beautiful first and foremost because there's a lot of uh, precious stones adorning it or because of the streets of gold or because of its glory with which it shines. All of that stuff is fantastic. But the main reason that the new heavens and the new earth are so great is because God is there and lives with us. And the idea is right now we live in a world where our relationship with God, it's, it's fuzzy. We, we don't see him like we would want to see him. We don't relate to him like we would want to relate to him. Our relationship with him, even as Christians, we don't have the closeness of relationship with God that we long for. And what John describes is that the day is coming when we will. When God will live among us, his tabernacle, his temple, his dwelling place will be right in our midst. We'll see him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, for now we see in a mirror indirectly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Now, it's important to know, in, in Paul's day, mirrors weren't quite what they are today. They weren't as clear as shiny. They were usually a piece of glass where you could kind of look, and you could kind of see your face, but it would have been dark. It would have been fuzzy. You wouldn't have been able to see yourself super well. He says that's what it's like trying to relate to God right now in the midst of a fallen world. I don't, I don't see him as well as I would like. My own sin and, and the nature of this fallen world obscures that vision. But he says one day we're going to see him face to face. He's going to live with us. The reason that heaven is beautiful is because God lives there. Uh, sometimes people will come over to our house, and in fact, it happened just a couple days ago. Somebody will come over and they'll walk in and they'll go, wow, you have a beautiful home. And I can tell if they've only met me and not my wife, they're, a little, they're always a little surprised. It's like, wow, this isn't where I expected somebody like you, you know, would live. Like, this is not, you have a beautiful home. And I always tell them, thank you, it's not because of me. Right? It's because of Shannon, like she's really good at decorating and picking the right colors and, and the right uh, you know, kind of floors when we first moved in and furniture that matches it all and pulling it all together in a way that is beautiful. If I lived here alone, if it was just me, it would be, it would be very spartan, it would be very bare, it would be very dark, it would be very sad. Right? The place is beautiful, 
because she lives there. Heaven is beautiful because God lives there. You could be in the most beautiful place on planet Earth, but if God is absent, it's filled with darkness and pain. The reason the new Jerusalem is beautiful is because God finally says sin is done away with, death is done away with. Now you can have unhindered access to God. The greatest promise of heaven is life forever with God, who is perfect and pure and righteous. The world will be perfect then, first and foremost, because God will live with us. Secondly, because the curse itself will be lifted. We saw this in chapter 21, 4 and 5. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Chapter 22, verse 3, just directly says, there will be no more curse. You remember the curse from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God pronounced a curse over them. Certainly the worst part of that curse was death. We're going to talk about death in just a few minutes and the the abolishment of death because I think that's the biggie when it comes to the curse. But but for a minute, I I want us to recognize there are other aspects of the curse. There are other aspects of the curse, right? So you remember when God pronounces this curse, it involved enmity first and foremost between uh, the man and the ground. Do you remember that? So now when he works, when he tries to get food out of the ground, it, it just doesn't happen like it's supposed to. It's not easy. It's not natural. It's not normal. He has to labor over it. He has to work over it. And there are storms and there are droughts and there's pestilence and there's all kinds of problems with the crops that you're trying to grow. So it's hard work. Even if you're an office worker, you've experienced this disconnect. You go on Monday morning, you go, man, this should be a lot more fulfilling. There should be a greater correspondence between what I'm doing and the results of what I'm doing. It should feel a lot more meaningful. Part of the curse was the futility of our labor. Part of the curse was also not just conflict between us and the earth, conflict between us and other people, starting with the most close and intimate of human relationships, the marriage relationship. God says to Eve, he says, your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. So now there's going to be conflict between the man and the woman. There's only two people, by the way, at this point on the earth, and they already are in conflict because of sin. And then their kids immediately have sibling rivalry that results in murder. And so there's conflict between people, and there's disconnect between us and God. So here, John says, after all is said and done, death has been done away with. All of God's enemies are destroyed. Satan is no more. Sin has been dealt with. Now the curse is lifted. It doesn't exist anymore. And I love this part. This is the part that makes everybody feel emotional as it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is uh, taken largely from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah says, the Lord who commands armies will hold a banquet for all the nations on this mountain. At this banquet, there will be plenty of meat and aged wine, tender meat and choicest wine. Uh, We'll come back to that provision a little bit later. On this mountain, he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations. He will swallow up death permanently. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, the Lord has announced it. At that time, they will say, look, here is our God. We waited for him. And he delivered us. Here is the Lord. We waited for him. Let's rejoice and celebrate his deliverance. Isn't that beautiful? We waited for him. 
And here he is. And John says, here's the moment, and he wipes away every tear. What, what are these tears that are still on the faces of people entering the new heavens and the new earth? Well, they're all the tears from what we've endured through the eras of sin and death and conflict and devastation. And we've come through it now successfully because of the blood of Jesus Christ, but there's still tears on our face, and so God wipes them away, and he says, no more. They're gone. All that's in front of you now will be joy. You know, several years ago, some of you will remember, there was kind of a meme that went around for a while. It was uh, reasons my kid is crying. So people, if they had a toddler especially, they would, uh, they would take a picture of the toddler like curled up on the ground, you know, face crying, tears running down. And then they would just write the reason their kid was crying. So some of them were like, uh, he found out that the Golden Gate Bridge isn't really made of gold. And so he's crying. Now to me, that's actually a pretty reasonable uh, reason to cry, right? That seems fair. If you expected a gold bridge and you get there and it's like orange, you're like, this isn't what I expected. This is a disappointment, right? Another one was like, I wouldn't let him eat a battery. And so he's, he's crying. One said, I wouldn't let him bite the cat, which I, again, I kind of get if the cat bit him first, it seems fair that you should be able to bite the cat back, right? So, so they would take these pictures and they would post them. And, you know, they were funny on the one hand, but I'll be honest, I always felt a little uncomfortable with them. And it finally occurred to me why. I thought, you know, in that moment of that kid's distress, as, as silly as it may seem or as small as it may seem, in that moment of the kid's distress, for whatever reason, that parent's instinct was not compassion, but to take a photo and post it on the Internet. And then I read Revelation 21 and 22 and I see, oh, I'm so glad that's not what God does. Because our distress could look small to him, right? Because he knows the end of the story. He's writing the end of the story. He knows that all our suffering will one day be abolished. He knows that all sin will one day be abolished. He knows that death will one day be no more. And so as we cry, he could say, look at that. Take a picture, show it to the angels, have a little fun. Right? But John says that's not what he does. He sees us. He knows. He's with us. And John says, what I saw was a God of compassion who wiped away their tears because the curse is no more. God will live with us and the curse will be lifted. Thirdly, it will be a place where all of our needs will be met. Chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water, the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now we'll come back to the, the next couple of verses, or at least those concepts a little later. But I want you to notice, he says, okay, I'm the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Creation has its origin in me. Creation has its end point in me. I'm the one who made it. I'm the one who's guiding it. Then he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give to the one who thirsts. If you're thirsty, you get to drink from the spring of the water of life for free, without cost. Now that is not a metaphor. We find that out in the next chapter, Revelation 22, when John describes the spring of the water of life. It's a real thing in a real place in the new Jerusalem that comes from heaven to earth. Listen to this, Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, 
coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. All the light that we need to see by comes from the glory of God. But I also want you to notice the spring of the water of life running right down the center of the new Jerusalem. And this is really, really significant. Lining that spring or that river is the tree of life. And it says it's lining it. So the idea is there's lots of trees and they bear their fruit every month so that every single day without cost, without limit, we can eat from God's tree of life and live forever. Remember, we're going to be in resurrected bodies. That the hope of the Christian faith largely rests on one day rising from the dead and, and soul and spirit will be reunited and we will live in resurrected bodies. That means just as Jesus in his resurrected body ate a piece of fish, we will still eat and drink. That's Isaiah says that and Revelation says that. But we won't have to worry about lack. Now, you remember the tree of life. You may remember the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the one they were not supposed to eat from that they ate from. The tree of life, though, was the one that God gave them that they could eat from freely as long as they obeyed him. You remember that? So they could eat from any tree, and they could eat from the tree of life. As long as they ate from the tree of life, they would stay alive. They would live forever in God's presence. But you remember when they disobeyed God, and they're kicked out of the garden. You remember what happens to the tree of life? You can't get there anymore. Genesis 3, 24, when he drove the man out, he placed on the eastern side of the orchard in Eden angelic sentries who used the flame of a whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Can't get there anymore. And without the tree of life, without the provision of God for body and spirit, you're going to die. John says, here's what I saw when Jesus came back and set up his eternal kingdom. Not just one tree of life, a whole bunch of them. Lining the river of life. The water gives life, the trees give life, because God gives life. All your needs will be met. This should encourage you if you're worried right now about inflation. I read this week that 83% of Americans are worried about inflation, worried about having enough to pay for what they need. I don't know why the other 17% are not. There's always a certain percentage that aren't paying enough attention, right? Most people, and they said uh, something like 57% are worried about paying for stuff right now. They don't have enough. They're worried. They don't have enough in the bank account. And they go, where am I going to get what I need? The other 43% are worried about uh, paying for stuff in the future. I have what I need today, but I'm afraid I won't tomorrow or the next day or next month or next year. Even rich people, they surveyed a whole bunch of millionaires and they found that even rich people, even the majority of millionaires are worried about having enough. Because in the final analysis, I think we know our bank accounts can't save us. No matter how much you've got stashed away, it might not be enough. 
But John says, I saw a place where the God of the universe gave more than enough to all of his people forever and ever. Throughout the Bible, of course, God is is depicted as a shepherd who leads his people to abundant life, abundant grass and water and provision. The most famous of the Psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. I, that's, I recite that for my mic check every Sunday morning. I memorized it several years ago, not as some sort of you know, uh, exercise in super spirituality, but, but I memorized it because I need it, because I need to hear it, that we worship a God who provides, not only spiritually, but John says the day is coming where all of our physical needs will be met for free, without cost, forever. That's why Jesus at the Feast of Booths stood up and he says, hey, anybody come to me and receive the water of life without cost. That's why in Revelation chapter 7, John says this. He ties this shepherd imagery back to Jesus. He says, the lamb in the middle of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to springs of living water. Nobody will lack anything. Nobody will have to worry about having enough because God gives everything for free forever. So God lives with us. The curse is lifted. Our needs are met. Fourthly, our home is glorious. Our home, our surroundings are like nothing else you could ever imagine. I'm not going to read all of the last half of chapter 21, but I want to read a few verses. In verse 10, John says, And he, that's the angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then he goes on and he describes the dimensions of this city as well. So it's bright and it's shiny. He's going to say in a minute, they don't even need a sun because the lamb is its, the glory of God is its light. It's brilliant and it's bright and it's huge. John describes a city where the walls are 1,500 miles long. And 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles high. It's enormous. Why is it so big? Well, people debate about that. But it seems like it's so big because of all the people who live there. It has to be big. Just to give you perspective, uh, he describes a city that is 2.25 million square miles. Now, for perspective, College Station is 51 square miles, not 51 million or 1,000. 51 square miles. So this city is 44,000 times the size of College Station. It is 80% the size of the United States of America. So this is why I think, you know, there's continuity and discontinuity between this earth and the new heavens and the new earth. It's so big. I think there must be some sort of uh, larger area. John says later on, there's no sea. Why is there no sea? Because remember, in the book of Revelation, everything bad comes from the sea, including the beast. Now, there's water, and I think there are shorelines, but there's no seas. He describes a city where the gates are enormous. Each gate is made from a single pearl. I don't know how that's possible, but it's huge. 
And each gate has the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the foundation stones are made of every costly pearl or every costly uh, precious stone in all of creation. And they have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb so that the Israelites and the Gentiles are depicted living together in harmony in this city where there is bright light and the glory of God shines. In, in chapter 21, verse 22 to 27, it says, I saw no temple in it. Why? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, you don't need a temple because God is everywhere. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. Its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. Why? Because it's perfectly secure. There's no crime rate in heaven. No one's going to steal from you. So they don't even have to close the gates. You don't got to lock your door. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. John describes a place of unimaginable beauty and perfection. I don't know if you've got some sort of dream place that you would like to retire someday. A lot of people do. They're like, if I could retire, you know, it would be in the Rockies next to a mountain stream with, you know, a beautiful little cabin. And so you imagine all the great things about that. You know, you, you kind of gloss over in your mind that the winters might be really hard, right? But you've got this really beautiful image where you say, you know, I would like to live somewhere with sort of the climate and the geographical, topographical beauty of Northern California, but with the people of Texas, right? That's, that's the image that I have in my mind, a place of, of this kind of uh, perfection, Right, But we never find it. We never find it here. Everything here disappoints us. John describes a place where the people and the surroundings and the city, all of it reflects the glory of God, and it's unimaginably beautiful. So that's why, you know, toward the end of chapter 21, that's where we get this idea of the streets of gold. It says that the streets of the city are gold, but a special kind of gold. It's a transparent gold. It's so pure that you can see right through it, and it's so plentiful that they use it as the paving for the streets. Things that are rare and precious are abundant in the kingdom of God. The home is glorious, again, because God is there. And then last, I promised I'd come back to this one. Fifthly, death will be abolished. We've seen that a couple of times. At the beginning of chapter 21, he says there's no more death. Chapter 22, he says there's no more curse. The greatest curse was death itself. Sin led to death. And death leads to separation from God. John says, death, remember, death was cast into the lake of fire. Death is gone. You don't have to worry about it anymore. This is a life that goes on forever. And he says, it's a life where we'll have all we need. He even says, hey, his bondservants will serve him. We will still work, by the way. It's just going to be really good work. Work that means something. We'll have plenty to eat, plenty to do. In the presence of God forever, death will be abolished. If you've ever lost somebody, you, you feel with John the joy of his heart. John lost a lot of people. He's the last of the apostles still alive. The others were all killed, and he's in exile. So he says, I saw, I saw that there wasn't going to be any more death. Some of you know, a couple years ago, my father died, uh, fall of 2020. And there were some friends of his at this church that just at their own initiative, out of the kindness of their, their hearts and their generosity, they, 
decided to buy and plant a tree on this side of the building in, in honor of him. And in fact, he, he was able to come as they planted the tree just a couple weeks before he died. I go there all the time. I walked past there this morning. And I remember him, and I, I love it. I love the tree. But I read this, and I think, you know what, what would be better than a tree? Seeing my dad. Anybody who has experienced the sting of death, man, you long for the joy of resurrection. This is the great hope, by the way, of the Christian faith. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. The saying will happen, men and women. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? John says, I want you to know it's, it's going to happen. Death will be no more. God's people will live in a perfect place with him forever. The world will be perfect. That's the longing of our heart. That's the hope of the Christian faith. That's what we look toward when we're facing loss and darkness and pain and sickness. And where John closes his letter then, he says, I want you to know, by the way, everyone's invited. This has been a central theme of the book, by the way. Remember, all throughout the book, there have been invitations from angels and from witnesses on earth. There have been all of these invitations. Even the tribulations themselves and all the judgments of the tribulation have been designed to draw people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone's invited. And so John, as the book closes... The angel says to him, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then Jesus speaks. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly. That's the first of three times, by the way, at the end of this chapter that Jesus will say that. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Again, John falls down because he's overwhelmed with the beauty of hope. And the angel says, no, no, no. Keep your eyes fixed on the hope of God. Keep your eyes fixed that God is the king. Jesus Christ is the one who will reign. And then the angel said, he said to me, verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In other words, John, I want you to keep it open. Don't seal it up. Tell people about it. Write it down so people can hear. Because again, everyone needs to hear this. Everyone is invited. It's an open invitation for all who will trust in Jesus Christ to be in the new heavens and the new earth, to live with him forever in the new Jerusalem that he is bringing. 
Verse 11, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, again, the angel isn't saying, hey, if you like doing bad stuff, just keep on doing it. There's some irony here. In a sense, as you've gone through the book, there have been all of these judgments and all of these warnings, and there have been certain people that have dug their heels in and refused to repent. And so ironically here, I think the angel goes, hey, keep on doing that and see what happens. Because Jesus is coming back quickly. And everybody's going to land on one side of belief in him or the other side. Which will it be? Jesus speaks again, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. How do you wash your robes? In the blood of the lamb. By believing in Jesus Christ who died for your sin and rose from the dead and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. That is, I'm the king God promised, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. John, in a sense here, is riffing on Isaiah 55 that says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come to this place where there's never lack. There's always enough. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. It's free. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. That's how Revelation ends as well. Listen and believe. All who want to know Jesus and have eternal life can have it. It's free of charge. Come take the water of life without cost. Jesus said it this way in John 7 at the Feast of Booths. Now the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. The future is bright for those who know Jesus. He says, all can come for free. That's where our hope lies. John closes out. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book book. In other words, there are some people who might try to ignore, twist, or deflect our attention from what God is saying. John says they're false prophets, they're false teachers. And there's a warning for those types of folks. But then he ends, he says, he who testifies to these things says for the third time, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. And so John roots our hope there. We want to root our hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. Not in your bank account, your 401k, not in the government, not in some person who isn't Jesus, not in some false religion, but you transfer your hope. You say, in the darkness of this world, God, I look to you. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to close in worship in a moment, but I, I want us to do this with John. I want us to say, 
what he said in response to Jesus saying he's coming quickly. I'm going to read verse 20, the first half. And after I read, yes, I am coming quickly, I want all of us to say it together. Amen, come Lord Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Say it again. Amen, come Lord Jesus. One more time. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha cry of our heart. It's the center of our hope. You came once. We believe you'll come again to fulfill all your promises, to defeat all of our enemies and your enemies, and to save us, your people. Lord, let us root our hope there and let us live our lives in light of that hope, in anticipation of that day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.